From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, in conjunction with the OSU Department of History and its magazine Origins, OSU student Patrick Patyandi talks with historian Sarah Siff about her article on class warfare published in Origins. Then, upcoming six-string concerts guest Anna Vogelzang tells us about her music. And Writer's Talk intern Grace Hardwick discusses the Lance Armstrong scandal with sports blogger Dave Ferguson. This is Writer's Talk History, a partnership between Origins, an online magazine from the Ohio State History Department, covering current events and historical perspective, and the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing, also at The Ohio State University. All Origins articles and podcasts can be accessed for free at go.osu.edu backslash origins. Today we're speaking with Sarah Siff, an American historian at the Ohio State History Department, about her recent Origins article, From Karl Marx to Karl Rove, Class Warfare in American Politics. Thanks for being on the show, Sarah, and welcome. My pleasure. Thanks. So how about you just start by telling us a little bit about what you wrote for Origins? The reason it's from... Karl Marx to Karl Rove, as I wanted to talk about this idea of class warfare as being sort of a rhetorical device that presidents use to gain electoral power. And in the beginning, in the late 1800s, Karl Marx talked about class warfare, and capitalists had a lot of money, and they had a whole bunch of people working for them. And occasionally, those people would decide they had had enough of their crappy working conditions and low wages, and they would actually start overturning boxcars and setting warehouses on fire. And so class warfare was an actual thing that happened. These days, what it is, a slander that often conservatives use when they want to talk about someone as redistributive or uh, what they would call socialist economic policies. So the story of how class warfare was used in presidential rhetoric over time. is It's kind of interesting because in the two Roosevelt administrations, for example, it was okay to talk about the fact that some people had all of the wealth and a big mass of people had very little. And presidents would make this case that they were on the side of the masses. And they would talk about how they were going to change the tax law to redistribute wealth to people who had less. And this was a very common thing to talk about. After World War II, it became sort of a problem for New Dealers. When FDR was elected for the last time, people started saying he's using all this class warfare rhetoric and he, he is pitting the masses against property owners. Conservatives in the early conservative movement really picked up on this idea. So people like William F. Buckley and Robert Taft started using this language to describe pro-labor policies, changes in tax law, those types of things. And by the time the Reagan administration came around, something really interesting happened. No longer was the enemy big business, as it had been talked about for so long, but it was now big government. So the enemy sort of got switched from big business versus the people, and now it was big government versus the people. And this idea had a lot of traction. People still talk about class warfare. It doesn't always necessarily apply to policies that people think are socialist, but the liberal side will say that policies that benefit the wealthy are also a form of class warfare because they are class warfare on behalf of millionaires. Do you find that Americans have a hard time talking about, quote unquote, class? When the Occupy Wall Street movement, all these things to public attention, people started thinking about them. And suddenly, if you're engaging in class warfare, it's not necessarily that you're the bad guy anymore. You can be the good guy, like Teddy Roosevelt, when he said, I'm in this fight to the end. I think the malleability of the term over time indicates that it really is hard for people to make any sense of policy. When it was okay to say, I'm on the side of the working class, 
class and I'm going to go after the wealthiest people. That was kind of clear cut. And maybe that time is coming back around again. Your article was in some ways a kind of digital media piece. Um, and I'm kind of wondering what the writing process was like for you. This might be a little bit controversial in terms of historical method. Well, first, I researched the topic online just by Googling it. And I read Wall Street Journal articles and New York Times articles, whatever I could find, basically, on it. There was a really helpful piece on NPR about how the term class warfare was used recently. My primary sources that I used were newspaper articles that I text searched. So it's probably not too cool in the history profession to say, yeah, I did my research by text searching newspaper archives. That's how I did that. And that's how I found the trends in how the term had been used. How is writing for digital media different from doing a traditional paper? And I think the answer is that you can point people to sources that are better than what you have to say about it just by linking to them. Right, in kind of a hyperlink fashion. Yeah. So that's what's unique about it. And then you can provide as much to look at as you want. And you can't do that on paper. And I know you have a background in journalism, and I'm wondering how that might have prepared you for writing a piece like this? Journalistic style is a little bit different from academic style, of course, because when you're preparing an academic piece, you can structure your argument to build to your main point. And in journalistic writing, you want to put the most important information up front because you know that as the piece gets longer, you're going to lose readers uh, one after another. So there's kind of an inverted pyramid idea in journalism where you put the big idea at top and then less important, less important, less important stuff. So I think in that sense, this piece is more along the lines of creating an argument, but it's also important to say things that people will understand if they are not uh, historians. It's an interesting way to kind of think about the process of writing through that. Um, and have your graduate studies, you're a, you're a PhD student in, in the history department here at OSU. And I'm wondering if your graduate studies in history have prepared you for only specific types of writing or if they've developed you as a writer overall. History as a discipline has the most variety in the style of writing in of, of just about any discipline that I've done any significant amount of reading in. In some cases, you get people who present all of their theory up front, and they'll talk in the first person. On the other hand, you get a lot of really exciting writers who are almost philosophical from the very beginning and are, you know, talking about really deep things. <laughs> so right. it's, um, there's a there's a huge variety. History is sort of classically told in a narrative format in chronological order. And, you know, that's another completely different style. So one of the things that drew me to the discipline in the beginning was that the writing was really good. And I, I remember I took as an undergraduate a class in the history of Vietnam, and it was the first time I had read journal articles from history. And they were so they were so good. <laughs> and I just immediately I became, um, I, I wanted to read more of them. And I was interested in the publications and, and the sort of intricacy and density of some of the writing really appealed to me. So do you think historians have, have almost an advantage in terms of of their writing? Do they work more at it? Or is it perhaps just more important to their discipline? To me, writing is important in any discipline. But particularly in history, you have to sell your idea, your version of how things happen. And to do that, you have to keep all these things in mind as you're writing. You have to be succinct because you don't want to lose people's attention. You have to be truthful. You have to present 
sources and make sometimes you have to make a case that your sources are important you have to make a case that your sources are credible um it's just a lot of different threads that you have to hold on to at once it's challenging definitely do you find it's hard to get people outside of academia do you find it hard to to kind of explain what you do to them what I find hard is when they say that my research sounds interesting, whether they mean that or not. <laughs> right, yeah. How genuine is, is that? Interesting. But my research is, is not esoteric. I am interested in how people th- thought about evolutionary theory during the civil rights era. So when I describe the three main things, for example, that I have so far found out about that topic, people seem to understand what I'm talking about. And they usually say it's interesting, but what does that mean? <laughs> right, definitely. Uh, I think I can relate to to that difficulty there. And has has your origins article, from Karl Marx to Karl Rove, has your origins article helped you to convey what you do in that regard? I posted it on Facebook, and so a few of my, a handful of my friends probably will have read it. I hope that that people find it accessible. The goal of Origins is to make research accessible, and I think it succeeds at doing that. Well, thanks, Sarah. Thank you for joining us today on Writer's Talk History. Thank you. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Patrick Patyandi, talking with historian Sarah Siff. More information is available on our website at www.writerstalk.org. Now we'll turn from history to the immediate past with a report from OSU student and Writers Talk intern Grace Hardwick about the Lance Armstrong scandal. Discussing it with her will be sports blogger Dave Ferguson. I'm Grace Hardwick. Today we have Dave Ferguson, a sports fundamentalist who also hosts, produces, and blogs his own radio show titled Beyond the Cheers. He's on the line with us today to talk about Lance Armstrong. How are you, Dave? I'm fine, thanks. Yourself? Good, thank you. Uh, Welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we have one of the most famous athletes here causing a media frenzy due to his admission on Oprah, which aired last night, about using performance-enhancing drugs during his cycling career. Her first question was, did you use banned substances? And he said yes. Why do you think he came clean? Well, the reason he's coming clean, basically, is the number of, of athletes prior to him that have been on the same racing team, Floyd Landis and a number of others, as of recent, have basically told the whole entire story. So Lance basically had no other alternative mm-hmm. uh, being backed into a corner except just to uh, answer that he's guilty as, as, as much as the others. Right. So back in 2012, he was stripped of those titles after being accused of this, and he denied any using and distributing of performance-enhancing drugs. So what does his recent confession do for his personal future and also his cycling career? Well, I think for his personal future, I think Lance Armstrong, just to back it up a little bit, uh, he always seems to do something for a reason, and there's always something on the other side of doing such such things. He's a very competitive, highly competitive individual. I know... Uh, that he still w- mm-hmm. he still wishes to compete, uh, not necessarily in the cycling arena, uh, but more of a triathlete. Uh, triathlon. Yeah, triathlon and stuff like that. Were there others, cyclists, in fact, like involved in this doping scheme as well? You mentioned people of his team. He'd been also along with a childhood friend uh, that's been with him for 16 years, and during the course of that, they did everything together. Now, he didn't come out and say it in the interview, but uh, a lot of the... the the doping and a lot of the, the, the orchestration of everything did come through him, basically, because uh, his arrangement with Dr. Ferrari, 
and uh, putting all that together, that was all, uh, you know, under under his wing of getting that done. And you also mentioned too, and it's very true, uh, cycling in the Tour de France is is very. Um, scandalous because it has been for a number of years has been doping issues with it for, for years and he basically said and I, I'm inclined to, to agree with him and I could you can anybody could validate that in order to compete at that level uh, either want to compete and, and win at all costs and, and compete at that level the only way you can do that is by uh, substance abuse He kind of bullied them in a sense to kind of keep quiet too which is interesting there so what do you what do you think exactly is his motive by testifying against these members of the International Cycling Union? Well, like I said, he, he wanted to come clean, number one, and uh, right. uh, he, he explains uh, uh, not necessarily probably to clear his own conscience, but you know he he had a lot of this on his shoulders, and uh, uh, when they were looking at the the video of some things he had said and done in the past, and. Uh, He's very remorseful with regards to that. Like, do you think the whole cycling thing has a future, or do you think people can kind of forget and forgive this? Or uh, Cycling is going to have a future. Now, it's going to tell the tale when we come up to the next Tour de France, which is Tour in June, uh, given all the doping that's gone on in cycling and Tour de France, that they're, uh, they're looking at a good, strong possibility of removing cycling from uh, the athletic games simply because of the... Uh, the amount of doping in it, but I mean, if they're going to look at that and do it for cycling, they should start doing it for other sports. And I think uh, uh, weightlifting certainly comes a close second to uh, to cycling. So, one last question, Dave: um, What does this mean for Livestrong, the multi-million-dollar brand organization? He's already stepped down from Livestrong. Livestrong is, is well established, uh, and that was another reason uh, Lance wanted to apologize, simply because of uh, uh, the number of people he had. Uh, uh, walked on, crawled on, and stomped on, and bullied over the course of the years. He wanted to to bring all that stuff to the forefront, and part of that is with with Livestrong because a lot of individuals uh, that are victims of cancer, uh, they idolize, they pedestalize, they they turn Lance into into a hero, basically because he's he's overcome cancer and, and overcoming cancer, and then winning seven Tour de France titles and things of that nature. So, uh, which is one of the reasons he's backed away from Livestrong. It's, it's, it's doing well on its own. It's, it's, it's helping a lot of individuals with, with cancer. Um, he, he's got it uh, very well established in the trench, and, and him backing away from it uh, only means a positive step, uh, for not only for Lance Armstrong, but a positive step for Livestrong that it can begin now to distance themselves uh, from some of the negative cloud that's hanging over uh, Mr. Armstrong at this time in order for them to move forward and still continue uh, to be a viable institution. That's great. Okay, well, thank you so much for answering those questions and taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Anytime. Uh, hopefully I'll answer all your questions. And, uh, oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, always a pleasure. So. All right, thank you, and have a good day. You too. Thanks all very right. much. Bye. That was OSU student and Writers Talk intern Grace Hardwick talking with sports blogger Dave Ferguson. More information about that topic can be found at our website at www.writerstalk.org. If you're looking for a new artist to hear this weekend, check out our next guest, Anna Vogelzang, in town with Six String Concerts. Today I'm talking to Anna Vogelsang, who will be in town with the Six String Concert Series very soon, and she'll be talking to us today about her albums, her music, and why she decided to come to Columbus, Ohio <laughs> on a cold time. So welcome, Anna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
So tell me about the music that you'll be playing for Six String. Um, what can people expect when they go to the show? Well, I'll be opening for Ellis Paul, so I'll be doing um, probably a little bit around a half an hour set, and I'll be playing songs off of my album that was released, I guess now last year, in 2012. Uh, the record's called Canary in a Coal Mine, and I uh, have been playing sets recently where I've been mixing up the instrumentation, so I play the guitar, the ukulele, the thumb piano, and the banjo. The the thumb piano. Yeah. <laughs> that one I'm not familiar with. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. Uh, well, it's a kalimba, um, which is literally just a small um, wooden box, basically, with a hole in it um, and uh, multiple little teeth that you play with your thumbs. Um, it's traditionally an African instrument, and there are tons of different kinds of them. And I got one as kind of a – I don't even recall how I came upon it, but I think I got it at a – at like a instrument shop while I was on tour sometime just cause it was fun and small and whatever. And then ended up writing a song on it. And then, um, that song turned out to be the first track on the new album. And so when I play it live, I pull it out and play it on the, on the thumb piano. So are you going to be known then you're looking to be known as a thumb piano virtuoso? <laughs> Not quite. They, they definitely exist. Actually, there's, there's tons of them. Uh, and I feel, uh, not not worth my salt when it comes to when I go across these videos, especially on YouTube and things like that. You can just kind of get lost in these vortexes. Um, well, as is the whole internet. But um, you know, you there are definitely people who are really amazing and doing really cool things with the thumb piano. I am just a, it's just a tiny song. That's usually how I how I uh, introduce it too. Is like this is a very tiny love song, but it's <laughs> one of those songs that needs the. Uh, needs the instrument itself. Like, it, it wouldn't be the same if I tried to play it on the banjo or something like that. So I actually got two new kalimbas that are tuned differently. So I've been writing some new songs on those and thinking, like, maybe I can do more than one thumb piano song. Who knows? <laughs> mm -hmm. But you're also doing, you said, banjo and guitar mm -hmm. and all these other things. How did you get started in music? What was your initial instrument? I guess my initial instrument was always voice. I mean, I, I played the piano um, all growing up, but I was really a singer. I did as much uh, choral work and acapella work and musical theater work as I could. Uh, I was in a, a funk band uh, in high school. Um, so I was always kind of trying to sing in any medium that would have me. So, um, And then I started playing the guitar um, after I kind of quit the piano, and that helped me in terms of ushering into songwriting and so when I started out uh, writing, especially my first, my first two really main instruments were both piano and guitar. Um, but I ended up kind of ditching the piano after I did uh, my undergrad degree and then sticking with the guitar and then kind of shifted into banjo, which was really just that I was bored with the guitar, um, which is kind of how it happens with me. <laughs> Tell me about the influence of uh, instruments when you're writing songs. You said Canary in a Coal Mine. The new CD features a song at the beginning that was written for the kalimba, the thumb piano. Mm -hmm. How has that translated into other songs for you about writing, say, off the banjo or the piano or the guitar? How does that work? Um, it's quite, for me, I, it's, uh, they're, they're completely married. So um, for me, when I'm writing, I actually just, uh, went up to a, a cabin um, in November and um, 
or excuse me, in December, I guess, and did a week long, um, self-imposed kind of writing retreat where I was, um, starting to work through some new material. And, um, I had done the same thing when I finished Canary, which was, I went up to this cabin and kind of, um, tried to flesh out these beginnings of songs that I had. And for me, what I've decided or discovered rather is that, um, you know, I really, if I start a song on the banjo, but I try to move it to the guitar, or if I start a song on the ukulele, but I want to play it on the guitar, the song kind of changes within writing it. So for me, so much of the instrument um, really informs, uh, both lyrically and melodically, really informs kind of the tone of the song. And so the song changes so much when you, you know, take let a banjo song and then you try to pick up a guitar and and kind of... Uh, rearrange it, it becomes kind of a new different thing. And sometimes that's awesome. I mean, sometimes I get stuck on the banjo with a, with a tune and it's like, well, let's try something completely different. And so I can pull it out of its own shell. But, um, but I am, I have a lot of friends who can really interchange, you know, it doesn't matter the instrument in their hand. They can, they have this, this song and this is how it goes. And so they can play it on X, Y, or Z instrument. And I've just kind of discovered of myself that I'm not, I'm not that uh, flexible. <laughs> Do you express a lot of resentment to those friends because they switch between instruments? <laughs> All the time. I'm just like, what do you, how do you do that? Uh, you know, and I, I have, especially for me, I have, I know people who can do piano to guitar and that is my, that's my brain barrier right there. It's like, I can play songs on the piano and I can play songs on the guitar and I know how to play both instruments, uh, you know, modestly, but to be able to kind of rearrange something between strings and then keys is is I just find that really admirable. <laughs> What's one song that you will be playing for sure at six string and tell me about the background of the writing of it? I will for sure be playing a song called Die Trying, which is the second song on Canary Nicole Mine. And um I I've been ending every set with that song for the last year or two. Um and it's a song that um I kind of wrote to get myself out of I don't know, whatever funk I was in, but, um, it's a song that I, I wrote actually in response. Um, there's an AA Bondi song called black rain, black rain that I had been listening to on repeat. And there's a line in it where he sings, can't you see I'm doing my best. And I was feeling, um, very frustrated with my work and, and touring and, and all that. And I kind of had that moment of, well, what if I, this is not my best? And the hook of the song ended up being, what if this is not my best? Which is something I think a lot of people have that, you know, moment, um, especially in the creative fields. But what is What if I should be doing something completely different with my life, etc. So um, it started there, and it's a it's a banjo song, and um, it ended up becoming kind of a back and forth between. It's kind of a narrative. I mean, it became a back and forth between two characters, um, and the idea is is kind of the person at home and the person on the road. So um, hypothetically, a conversation between me and my husband, or or me and a friend, or really anybody, um, and anybody who travels. It kind of turned. I used to say. Um, this is a song about when being on tour is really hard, um, you know, or something like that. And then it kind of morphed into like, this is a song about being homesick uh, because it isn't really about, it's a little bit about 
everything in the, in that context. You know how certain shows can make you just really bummed out or how certain shows can make you feel really, really hopeful, which is really the overall message of, of die trying is it's a really hopeful song, uh, especially at the end. Um, but also, you know, just that, um, that everyday kind of that everyday, uh, wariness of, of really missing where you're from when you've been gone for a long time. How did your husband react to the song after he heard it, knowing that that was sort of something aimed at your relationship and your feelings of loneliness? Did he uh, offer to travel with you? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's part of that's part of the the deal. Um, but it was funny because it it it's kind of a made up um, conversation, and so I was I played it for him. I actually that's one of the few songs I don't often say. Hey, I just wrote this song. You have to listen to the song. But I was so excited about it that I played it for him, like in our living room. And um, when I was, as I was finishing it, and he was like, "We, I never said that, <laughs> you know, because it says very specifically, you know, you said blah blah blah." And so it is. It is sounds like a conversation that I must have had with him, but it's completely fiction. <laughs> <laughs> More so, he was just worried about his representation. I think. <laughs> Right, right. That's always, I think, a worry when people are in a relationship with writers. Yes, exactly. Because you never know when that's going to show up. And there are various writers who have warned people, you're going to show up in my songs. I think um, Taylor Swift <laughs> is the current master Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. of throwing people into songs when they didn't expect it. Right. Well, well, we look forward to you coming to town. Thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled, actually. Very excited. And I'm also glad to see that um, just because you're at six string, they will let you drop a string to pick up the banjo. I know. I asked that too. I was like, I don't know if you can still have me. Well, and the banjo is five and the ukulele is four. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pushing the boundaries. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that on Friday, February 1st at the Columbus Performing Arts Center. And we will have the information to link to your website and to the place to buy tickets at www.writerstalk.org. And thank you very much, Anna Vogelsang. Thanks so much for having me. That was upcoming six-string concert guest Anna Vogelsang. Join us next time for Dr. Christopher Emden, keynote speaker at the upcoming Hip Hop Literacies Conference on February 15th at The Ohio State University. Also, we'll have a discussion of February 12th Thurber House guest Carla Buckley. And we'll have a visit from Second City, which will be in town with Kappa on February 8th and 9th. More information about any of our guests can be found at www.writerstalk.org. And we'll end today with Anna Vogel saying a song, Die Trying. This is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. I said I'd keep you around to keep me honest. Around to keep me clean. Shining fluorescent. You said as long as you feel okay